DKS 16 is powered by Meme Global, a video marketing and advertising solution for entrepreneurs. Hello and welcome to the Digital Kung Fu Show, a podcast and video cast for startup founders and entrepreneurs. Even if you're alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs across the world hustling today's markets. At Digital Kung Fu, we have one goal, to help entrepreneurs succeed in their ventures through information sharing, digitally connecting them with other entrepreneurs, and by dissecting and deconstructing the world's leading business minds right here on this show. Remember, you can view the full show notes on our website at digitalkungfu.co. .za or tweet this show using our handle at digital kung fu za or follow us on facebook.com slash digital kung fu za sales or the ability to make sales does not come naturally to many entrepreneurs but it is something that anyone can do <laughs> yeah it is hey that's my boy <laughs> he's making sales because he wants some dead time yeah yeah he does but sales at the end of the day is a skill and it's a skill that we can acquire and develop over time. And given the fact that sales is the lifeblood of any business, it's something that we all have to have as a skill set. So in order to understand exactly how to develop those skills, I've reached out to Craig Ilias, who's the world's most recognized business-to-business sales expert. While it's still in a business-to-business context, it applies very much still to a consumer uh, spectrum. So without further ado, allow me to introduce you to Craig Ilias. My name is Matt Brown, and in today's show, we are going to unpack what it takes to be a force in making business sales. Now, as we all know, sales or the ability to make sales is really the lifeblood of every business, which is why I'm thrilled to have with us today one of the most globally recognized authorities on how to make sales in business. Our guest today is the creator of Trigger Event Selling and a contributing author to the number one selling book, on both Amazon and the Wall Street Journal called Master of Sales. He is also the author of the award-winning sales book Shift, which we'll jump into a bit later, which basically is a methodical approach to harnessing what we call trigger events that turn prospects into customers. Hoorah! Uh, He is also the winner of the $1 million prize in Tim Draper's Billion Dollar Idea Pitch Contest, and his last company was named as one of the Dow Jones's 50 most promising companies in North America. He has received extensive coverage on NBC News, the New York Times, Sales and Marketing Management Magazine, and the Wall Street Journal, and has also been named 15th on Forbes' list of the most social salespeople on the planet. Our guest today is Craig Elias. Craig, thanks so much for your time to uh, join us today on the call. It's fantastic to have you in the hot seat. A pleasure to be here. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's jump straight into things. So it may seem counterintuitive to say that many entrepreneurs are not natural born salesmen. I think I would probably regard myself as one of those individuals. So let's explore why that is. Now, you consult to many types of businesses, most notably to brands like Wilcom, Goldman Sachs, and so on. So in your expert opinion, why doesn't the process uh, come naturally to many entrepreneurs in terms of selling? So I think the first thing is most entrepreneurs come at this from a marketing perspective. Marketing is designed to create interest in something, but it doesn't convert that interest into customers. And I think they're concerned, and most salespeople in some respects, especially early in their career, they're concerned about this thing called rejection. They don't want someone to say no. Mm. And as soon as you get over the fact that you've got to get through so many no's to get to a yes, Mm -hmm. 
then it becomes almost a competition. How fast can I get to 10 no's? Because I know there's a yes in here somewhere. So turn it into a game and find a way to make it work. So I think most of it is just fear of rejection, fear of failure, because it's their baby. And it's really hard because as an entrepreneur, you understand the problem and you have a unique way of solving it. But when you communicate your idea to somebody else, you're like, I don't get it. And entrepreneurs get so frustrated that the person's like, hang on, I'm making this as simple as possible. How can you not possibly get it? So <laughs> I think it's a combination of all those things. Yeah, I think it's the the going through as many no's as possible to get to a yes sounds to me like dating at a bar, trying to pick up chicks in a club or something. <laughs> but, so it all depends. So I will admit that I suck at that part because in that case, I take the rejection away more personally. <laughs> Um, sales they're not saying no to me they're just saying no to my idea exactly exactly (laughs) well you know and i think that's an interesting segue into your book shift right because for me that totally changed my perspective on how to make sales and in my view i really found it a completely transformative um read basically so for any of our viewers who haven't read it yet go and read it now um but in the book, you mention or you table the methodology called trigger event selling. Yep. Um, let's unpack what that is. How did the methodology you know, come about and what makes it unique in the context of selling products and services? So the way it came about, so I was, um, for all the people that are old enough that they were selling around 9-11, I joined a brand new technology firm the day before 9-11. And, of course, 9-11 happens and people aren't buying anything. They're hunkering down, hold on to cash or like, okay, don't make any decisions. But like always happened in my life or my career, I got lucky. And within six months, I'm the number one sales guy in the entire country. Wow. But the wow. problem is this tech firm is called WorldCom. And 21 days after I become the number one sales guy in the country, they admit to conducting $11 billion with a B, $11 billion in accounting fraud. Yeah. And all of a sudden, nobody would buy from me. And I couldn't figure this out. So what I decided to do was wait until the summer came along. And I had a nice house along the river in Calgary. And I reflected on 20 years of luck or success as a salesperson. And I basically focused on all my six, seven, and eight-figure deals and said, what was it about those deals that was different? And the first thing I figured out is that I had reached out to decision makers at a time when they were unhappy with what they have, but they hadn't started doing anything about it yet. So it's on their list of things to do, but it was something they hadn't got to. And that my average close ratio, didn't matter whether it was a six, seven, or eight-figure deal, my average close ratio was 80%. Shit. Yeah. So I'm like, <laughs> exactly. Now, it turns out I'm actually not all that special because the data says – so there's some, been some research done by Forrester. The data basically says if you can repeat what I did, the average close ratio is 74%. So I'm basically not even 10% better than the average. It's just that I had this method of reaching out and the reaching out is an important piece mm. to decision makers at exactly the right time. So that was my first epiphany. Mm. Okay. And then what I couldn't figure out is how do people go between these different buying modes? So the first one's called status quo, happy, not looking. The other side is unhappy and doing something about it, searching for alternatives. In the middle is this thing called a window of dissatisfaction. That's where the magic happens. Mm-hmm. But what I could not figure out is how does someone go from status quo on Monday to the window of dissatisfaction on Wednesday to start searching for alternatives on Friday? 
And that's when I realized there was an event that would make people actually want to change. So between status quo and window dissatisfaction, something happens. Uh, and then what I realized upon further reflection is there actually are three different events. One makes somebody want to change. Mm-hmm. One uh, affords someone the time or the money to change, so time to look at or money to buy. And then even when you get all these people that you've done that with, they don't always buy because very often they have to justify the purchase to somebody else. So they have to have three events. Mm. That was my second epiphany. There are these three events. And then my third epiphany was this, that for 20 years, my sales managers had always said, if you lose the business, don't lose the lesson. Mm. And I'd done this thing called the lost sales analysis. And what I realized is for the first time in almost 20 years, I didn't analyze what I lost. I analyzed what I won. won. Yeah. <clears throat> and the interesting thing is I went to Google not long after that, and I did a search for the phrase lost sales analysis. And I found – this is in the summer of 02. I found about 50,000 pages on the internet about how to analyze the business you lose, hoping you can lose less. Yeah. But I – when I went and replaced the word lost with the word one, W-O-N, so one sales analysis, analyze the business that you win, yeah. I searched that phrase, so between quotes, those three words in that order. December 2002, I found two pages on the internet that talked about analyzing your wins. Wow. Nobody was analyzing wins. They were all analyzing losses. And that's when I went, hang on a second. There is something here, mm-hmm. and that's sort of – that's actually how the company – that won the billion dollar idea competition came about because I realized that in the head in just North America alone, in the heads of salespeople, is about three trillion dollars worth of information. They know of all this stuff that customers want, but it's not what they actually sell. And that twenty five percent of the time they did nothing with that information. That's bizarre, eh? Huh? It's totally bizarre. Yeah. So that's how it came about. Okay, awesome. Well, geez, quite revealing that. Still staggers me how with all that data that the corporate execs don't actually do anything with it. You know, when there's such a uh, debate around data and big data and data-driven marketing and data-driven sales and acquisition and retention and all that kind of stuff. But uh, anyway, what can you do, hey? (laughs) Yeah, it's slowly getting better. But back then, stuff just wasn't done with it. Yeah. Cool. You mentioned these these events, right? So I imagine that in the process for entrepreneurs to kind of, uh, you know, identify these events, are there stimuli that they can, that they look out for? Um, And how does an entrepreneur really go about identifying these kinds of stimuli? Um, And I think also this is a segue into the zero moments of truth. Uh, Perhaps you can unpack all of that for us. So in my world, the stimuli is an event. Uh, I think I just saw Gardner. Was it Gardner who just came out with this just the other day? I think it was uh, Gardner had a brand new model. Yes. So Gardner had a brand new model. They talk an inspiration. Someone has this you know, epiphany. I need to change. Well, that epiphany is an event created by what Google calls a zero moment of truth or what I call a trigger, an event, right? Uh-huh. Um, so the way you learn of these, there's a couple of different ways. So first of all, that you can do what I did. So when you get a customer, especially one that's good, decides fast, pays a good price, willing to be a reference, you need to ask them the questions that I use around what is called a one sales analysis. Okay. So you have to have won at least a couple of deals to be able to do this. So the four questions go like this. The first question is, 
what event or what events, or you can say changes, right, okay. yep. led up to this purchase. What happens is when you ask that question, though, people tell you about the second event, which gave them more time or more money to actually do the analysis. So you have to ask a second question. And the second question is, when did these events happen? And what you're listening for is what was the first event that made them want to change? Mm-hmm. Uh, more times than not, it's one of three things. It's either A, they're new in a job. B, the person that used to sell to them has left that company and someone else has taken their place. Or C, they've moved to a different location and where they are now, there's different legislation and they have to change by law. So those are the three biggest ones in general. Um, so you ask these questions. Question number three, though, is um, what made you choose us? Okay. And it's important not to ask a why question because why questions make people defensive. So when we ask that question, what we're listening for is what's the outcome or value of being a customer? And what you're listening for are people to use verbs, not nouns. Mm-hmm. So uh, I do a lot of work for Goldman Sachs and their 10,000 Small Businesses Program. And one of the people I helped in the last go round, he has a porta potty business and he provides them to the military. Okay. (laughs) Big business, right? So he has all these drivers, all these trucks doing all these deliveries. Well, one day he decided he should put a GPS on the truck. Uh Well, it turns out that a whole bunch of these drivers were visiting their girlfriends in the middle of the day. So the value of having the GPS is, is not knowing where the trucks are. It's all about getting stuff delivered on time more often. (laughs) <laughs> right? yeah. so that's a classic example of using verbs to describe the outcome uh, and listening for those because some prospects have this magical ability I say doing mental gymnastics we have content the prospect has context how could something be relevant yeah. some can do the mental gymnastics and they figure out the value of the verbs we need to pull that out of the heads of our early customers and then spoon feed that to the rest of the people so we're listening for verbs. The last question is, how can we make it easier to become our customer? There is a – what I've learned since I started doing this is a really smart guy. His name is Kurt Lewin, K-U-R-T-L-E-W-I-N. Okay. And he says there are all these forces for change and there are all these restrainers against change. And if you take away the restrainers, you're more likely to facilitate the change that you want. It's not about adding more drivers. It's about taking away the resistors. Mm. So if you can ask the question, how can we make it easier to become a customer, you know, take American Express, do this, do that, do whatever else, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you do that. So one of my favorite examples is a pretty significant logistics firm. Went in to see a VP. We had this 20-minute conversation, classic 20-minute conversation. Has the same epiphany you had and says, great, I got a bunch of guys. Here's the date. And I go, I need to take a deposit, and I always take it by credit card. And he pulls out on American Express. Uh-huh. At the time, all I took was Visa and MasterCard. <laughs> so what do you think I did? I, don't know. I, would I love- wrote the number. I phoned American Express and said, how do I take American Express? <laughs> no. Right? All of a sudden now he has to do all this paperwork, has to go through corporate, has to get a purchase order. Yeah. Right? There's legalese and checks. It's like, no, I'm going to – while the strike while the iron is hot. Okay. Right? Took the credit card number three days later. Boom. Process transaction. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, is it another way to describe it as kind of, uh, I think there's a, maybe it's a quote, maybe it's not, but it's something that uh, you know, comes to mind where it's, if you remove 
not all, but the majority of barriers in the decision-making process, the likelihood of the sale is, you know, greatly increased. Is that broadly kind of what you're suggesting? By yeah, and, and it, actually, it actually happens for two different reasons. So first of all, um, it just speeds the process. And while people are uh, motivated, they do something with it. Mm-hmm. The second, second reason it also works really well, and there's some data that says that the deals you lose take 60% longer than the deals you win. Wow. Right? Yeah. So you know there's, there's a cadence, and when it gets to a certain point, you're like, okay, this deal is going off the rails. I'm gonna either going to rescue this in the next week or it's gone, right? But here's part of what happens. People only have so much money. Mm-hmm. So if they have budget assigned to something, um, what happens, 80% of all the corporate purchases are actually unbudgeted and unplanned early in the year. Something happens, and they rip budget from one place and put it somewhere else. Yeah. But what happens is if that deal takes too long, something else becomes a priority, and, and so all of a sudden the money gets spent there somewhere else. Yeah. It's like imagine you're on your way to a party. you got 20 bucks in your pocket. Mm-hmm. You can buy gas or buy beer. What are you going to do? Beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can only buy one. You can't buy. I mean, you can say ten bucks here, ten bucks there, but most people go. I need beer. I'll find a way to get the twenty bucks for gas later on, right? Yeah. So you can only spend money once, and that's the way that it works. Okay, awesome. Well, let's touch on buying need states, because so, I imagine that there are potentially more than one or two different types of buyers. For example, in your book, you table that there are, you know, effectively two types, namely emotional buyers and then yes. logical buyers. What are the differences between the two? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. So I'm going to argue that the difference is purely when in the buying process do people start making decisions. Okay. So the, the first decision around what is the problem, that's emotional. What is the solution? That's emotional. The thing is people justify their decisions with logic after the fact. They make decisions on emotion, who to buy from, mm-hmm. but then they have to justify with logic. And the, there's this acronym called RIPES, R-I-P-E and S. And this is basically the five ways that people justify. I don't think this is even in the book. Okay. So awesome. uh, the first one is risk avoidance. Yes. So yes. I'll give you a classic example. Uh, life insurance. There is, from what I'm told, one single event that drives more people to buy life insurance than all of the other events combined. Wow. And that's as soon as you get pregnant. <laughs> right? So as soon as there's a blue you know, strip on a stick – Okay, change where I live, get some insurance, give up my sports car, buy a station wagon. All of that based upon an event. So risk avoidance. Um, Second one is image. 
So some of this is how they justify to themselves. So it's how they justify it to others. So I am not going to go to my boss or my wife and say, I want to buy this car or I want to buy this phone or I want to buy this drone because it makes me look better. I, that's why I buy it. But I'm not going to say that to somebody else. But when you think about corporate purchases, if you can help somebody look so good they put it on their resume or they put it on their LinkedIn profile, that's part of the I. P is productivity. Productivity is how do I find a way to spend the same amount of money but get more stuff done? Mm. E is, is expenses, which is how do I get the same amount of stuff done, but how do I spend less doing it? Awesome. And S is simplicity or time. And there is uh, significant data that says the vendor who is easiest to do business with wins 38% of the time just because they're easier to do business with. Mm-hmm. So by being more responsive and more reliable, yeah, that's why you get picked. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of ripes, if you were to, are they actually in that order? So in other words, what's the bigger driver? Is it risk avoidance? You know, then image, then you know, so on and so forth. Is it in that so order? Say, yeah. So risk avoidance is first for a bunch of different reasons. Risk avoidance can be the reason, can be the event that gets someone to want to change, and also how they justify the change. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Right. So I would say risk is definitely first. And all the emotional ones are first because that's when people decide what to buy. I'll give you an example. Uh, married men buy jewelry right? on occasion, birthdays, anniversaries, Mother's Day, Christmas, in the doghouse, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is how they solve that problem is very different because you can buy jewelry, flowers, chocolate, perfume, lingerie, vacations, uh, you you can make options. dinner, right? You can make reservations. So there's all these different ways that you choose which solution to the problem based upon those things. Mm. Okay. Right? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, let's talk about credibility because, you know, especially for entrepreneurs with startups, right? They're new in yes. the market, but they've developed a proof of concept or an MVP. And now they want to basically go and, you know, get sort of early market traction, early adopters, and so on and so forth. In that spectrum, there's crossing the chasm, right? It's quite relatively easy comparatively to get early adopters using your product and say crossing the chasm, getting the early majority to use your product. Yep. And, and a large portion of that is kind of shifting your customer behavior away from existing products and services and towards something new. And yep. when something is new and the brand delivering that service or product is also new in the, in the category, you're up against the credibility curve, right? Yep. So um, in your view and your expert opinion, how do yep. entrepreneurs uh, carry out their um, credibility building sort of activities in the eyes of buyers and decision makers? Sure. So I'm going to talk about credibility in a bunch of different flavors. There's what's called relationship credibility, leverage credibility, and expertise credibility. So the first thing you want to do is you want to try and find people that you already know that you can sell to because you already have a relationship with. They trust you. The longer people have known you, the more likely they are to trust you unless you've done something stupid to uh, destroy that trust. Sure. So this for me is one of the reasons people say networking. The best time to network is 10 years ago and <laughs> today, right? So it's, it's interesting how I've been doing networking pretty significantly in the right way as far as I'm concerned, given you always get – since probably nine, I'd say really didn't get going until 99 when I moved into a 
new city and new nobody. That was my own trigger. Um, and I now have this massive network. So if I can't get something done or can't find a way to do it in five minutes or less, I call somebody and I ask. So I think one of the things entrepreneurs have to get away from is you know, believing that they have to know everything. If you don't know everything, pick up the phone, call somebody, ask. But start with people you already have a relationship with. Yeah. Right? So friends and family. Um, then, so once you get past the, the relationship credibility, you then need to find a way to do some sort of leverage credibility. So figure out um, who do your friends know you can get introduced to. Mm-hmm. And when you do this leverage credibility, I think what you want to do is you want to reach out to people that have a big following, maybe not so much a network, but a big following. So this is actually, uh, this comes from a guy named Seth Godin. He calls these people sneezers, right? <laughs> get get some guy who's got 20,000 friends on LinkedIn to use your product. And all of a sudden he tells a whole bunch of people. And now that sneezers credibility has people go, oh, I should go check this out. So this is what I love about being in the press. You're in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, whatever it is. People hear of you or read about you in the press like, wow, I got to check this out. New York Times says, I should check this out. Yeah. So that's what I love. That's the leverage credibility. Uh-huh. The expertise credibility is finding a way to focus on something and to know it so well mm-hmm. that people are like, wow, you, you definitely know your stuff. So wh- there's a book by two guys named Tom, and it's called Never Be Closing. And in that book, they talk about the credibility building process. And one of the things they talk about is having statistics. So when you have data that validates your perspective, you're off to the races. So I've talked about my stuff for a long time, and I would use some data around 75% of the time because that's what my data said. But in 2012, 10 years after I figured this out, Forrester comes along and says, well, guess what? It's actually 74%. It's not 75 <laughs> But because it's, it's theirs, you're off to the races. So if you look at any of my YouTube videos, you will notice I have lots of data. Because as soon as you have data and statistics, people trust you more. So I have been very lucky that I've been able to sort of find and even be told of different data points that validate the stuff that I talk about. Mm. So I use other people's data. So when Google came out with this zero moment of truth, it's now part of my presentations that I give to all these executives because mm. if Google says it's right, it, has it must to be. be right. Yep. <laughs> so, so that's, again, that's another example of the uh, not just the credibility from the numbers, the expertise, but I'm leveraging Google. I'm leveraging McKinsey. I'm leveraging Gardner, Forrester, Aberdeen, all these different people. And I'm like, okay, you have all this data from all these places? It must be right. Yeah, that's true, hey? Right? Yeah, it must be right. It must be right. I would I would agree. Um, although data can be misleading, but I guess if there's enough of it and there's more, I suppose, source or proof points. You know what I mean? Where it's not just one guy spewing a lot of data. Because in, in what in my experience, one of the sort of trend forecasters, you know, they use a lot of bullshit metrics to kind of substantiate a position. But I think. Yeah, and, and he- and here's the other thing that I think gives you credibility. LinkedIn gives you credibility. So I have, I'm watching very closely. The last time I checked, I had 986 endorsements for lead generation alone. So, <laughs> Boom. So when I, yeah. So when I get to like a thousand, I'm like, okay, there it is. And all of these are unsolicited. Yeah. So I don't know anybody else on the planet. I've looked, right? Like all the big names, Jeffrey Gittermer, everybody. There is nobody else I've found that has more endorsements than I do for that single thing around lead generation. So the focus component allows you to establish more credibility. There's this saying, 
um, that I've heard on occasion about generalists and specialists. Generalists know less and less about more and more until they know absolutely nothing about everything. <laughs> specialists know more and more about less and less until they know everything about nothing. And I'm closer to the knowing everything about nothing piece. In, in just the world of triggers, like I've been doing this for how long am I up to now? Uh, well, I'm up to 14 years on this. Uh-huh. And I've done it more times than anybody else. So it's just – and people come to me with an example. What about this? What about that? I have given away – this also helps. I have given away my advice to on average, let's say, 450 a year for at least the last 10 years. So I've given my advice away for 4,500 times, closer to five. So almost every industry, every geography, no matter what you're selling or who you're selling it to, I've been through these scenarios. And as soon as someone says, well, I bet you can't do it for this. And I'm like, well, it's that, that, and that. And they're like, oh, hang on a second. Now you say that, I can see it. (laughs) So I think repetition is also the key. Mm -hmm. That's where your expertise comes from. Not just knowing something, but actually having done it. Yeah, true, true, true. Um prospects so you mentioned lead generation right so the guys are drumming up leads however they get into companies they do some cold calling or whatever cold calling is an interesting thing because in my experience it's probably you know once you get if you're just starting out it's super hard super ego crashing super shit <laughs> but the more you kind of get you know no you hear the word no 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 over time it becomes easier to kind of um to use as a motivational driver right in terms of your yeah. selling um, but let's paint a scenario, right? So I'm, I'm, you, you're my prospect, right? Um, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I'm selling. I don't know what your buying modes are. There's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to happen, right? In order for me to qualify the lead, for example. Yeah. So, so how does an entrepreneur uh, do that? So do, what kind of questions should they uh, be asking to mine insights into the buying mode, I guess, or, or state yeah. of the of the decision maker. And from a engagement perspective, should it be short? Should it be long? Let's paint that context. And what kind of nuggets of advice do you have in that space? So I'm going to say two things. First of all, don't ask questions; make statements. Aha, uh-huh, cool. So as so, soon as you're asking someone a question, you're wasting their time. They want to learn. So what are you going to teach them? Mm. Teach to sell, basically, yeah? You have to to create curiosity in what you have. So first of all, don't phone everybody. Figure out who's most likely to actually buy. So again, focus on those that are new in their job. You'd be amazed how how motivated people new in their job are to uh, make change. The data I've seen says that of decision makers that will make a million dollars worth of decisions or more in a year – 80% 80% of those do it in the first 90 days. Right. So here's, here's the thing. Got a guy named Matt. He's new in his job. I'm going to phone him. Well, as soon as I phone him, I need to say to myself, hang on a second. There's actually a second opportunity because Matt replaced this guy named Steve. Steve has gone somewhere. He's got more money, more authority, more influence. He's new in his job. I should phone Steve. Yeah. And then when you talk to Matt, you figure out he left behind a job. Well, that role is going to get filled. So all of a sudden, Dave fills that job. So now you talk to Dave, and the first question you should actually ask Dave is, where did you come from? Because he's left behind the vacancy. So every job change creates multiple opportunities. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's, that's the first thing. Second thing is you need to make a statement. You can't ask a question. 
So you need to create, and I call this a seven-second sale. How do you tell people the value of being your customer using verbs? <laughs> you got from your one sales analysis. Yeah. Two verbs to create curiosity or interest in what you do. So whatever it is, you need to say, hi, Matt, my name's Craig, and I have a really simple way for your reps to close more deals. Right. The other person's always going to ask, how? Now, this is where it gets tricky because my, my suggestion is you don't tell them how. What you need to do is you need to say to that person, it takes me 15 or 20 minutes to ask a few key questions and to figure out how in your specific situation, when do you want to book that time? And here comes the important piece. Who else should be on that call? Yeah. And the reason you want the second person on the call is you call this guy named Matt. He's busy. You book 20 minutes. It goes really well. You hang up the phone and all of a sudden he goes on to something else. Yeah. So this is another one of those things that I think most salespeople suck at is at the end of a call or a meeting, they don't book the next one. They should book it, send out a calendar request. Straight away. So it's straight away. Like while I'm there, great. Tuesday, 15. Okay. You, me, and you know, who within marketing should know or who in operations or, you know, when, how soon has the CEO got some time to himself? As soon as you do that, now you've got two people in the room. You're, the data says just by leveraging a second contact, you're three times more likely to actually win the deal. Yeah. It's funny how decisions often are not made by one person. They're made by more than one, right? I agree. And, and you've got to find the champion because the champion is the person who's going to fight on your behalf. Yeah. They've got to drive My their agenda, is, right? Yeah, if people aren't willing to put a second person on the call, they're just using you. They've already got an existing relationship. They're going to borrow your idea and give it to the person they already do business with or they would prefer to do business with. Yeah, yeah. So you yeah, you know, as soon as you – people get sucked into that so fast. Oh, tell me what you have. Oh, puke. <laughs> and it's like nothing happens. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Um, which – and you know this whole context for me is like it's it's a it's a minefield, right? But um, you know objections. It's like, well, uh, I'm not. I don't have the time to talk to you right now. Can you call me back next next week? Or we're not in the market right now for blah 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 yada yada. Or we already have an existing service provider. Oh, and by the way, the relationship with them is just fucking fantastic. So we never would buy from anybody else. So these are all objections, right? So um, what advice do you have for, for entrepreneurs who, who, who you know, experience these objections and how to overcome them? Good question. So let's, let's pick these objections one at a time. I think I, I heard call me back in a few months I'm going to use because that happens all the time, yeah, yeah. right? We already have a vendor. So the whole coming back in October, we'll be looking at this then. When you hear that, all the bells in your head should go off because that tells you someone is actually in the window of dissatisfaction. These are the perfect prospects, mm, yeah. but they pushed you off. Mm -hmm. And if you phone them back in November, like they said, by the time you get to them in November, guess what happens? They already made a decision. Yeah, it's too late. Right? Yeah. You can even phone them two weeks earlier. It's too late. So you need to find a way to get on the radar screen right away because, and you want to get on the radar screen right away because you have to help them redefine the problem. And if you can redefine the problem, you're more likely to actually get them as a customer. Yeah. So Matt's going to brush me off. You know, hey Matt, I, you know, how soon can we chat? Is this something on your list? You're going to say, "Put me back in six months." Yeah. And I'm going to say, 
is there any way I can get on your calendar this week for 15 or 20 minutes? You're going to say no. What about two weeks? You're going to say no. I'm going to say, what about three weeks? You know, three weeks. I think I can make three weeks work. People generally won't say no to you three times in a row. It just takes persistence. And if they say no in three weeks, then you just say, what if I make it 10 minutes instead of 20? <laughs> no, I just want to meet with you because you sound interesting. <laughs> yes. But you see, like, it's, depending upon the audience, people generally will only say no so many times. So salespeople suck because they get a no and they stop. Yeah. No. What about next week? No. Week after? No. What about three weeks? Actually, you know what? Because if you're in first and you redefine the problem, you're off to the off to the races. Yeah. You redefine the problem. You design what they think is the perfect solution around what you have, and there you go. So that's the coming back in six months. <coughs> Another one. If we already have a vendor we like, so there's two different ways to solve this problem. Uh, the first one is to ask the question: Have they ever let you down? Yeah. They say yes, then you're like, well, what was the impact when they did? And, you, and now they're puking, and now they're remembering, oh, yeah, all that pain. Oh, that hurt. Man, I got pulled into my boss's office, and I missed my kids' baseball games. That was the impact, yeah. right? Then you ask the question, what have they put in place to make sure it never happens again? And that very rarely happens in my experience. It very rarely happens. You're like, yeah. They haven't done anything. Oh, then it can happen again. So that's one way. If they, if they say, well, they've never let me down, then you go to plan B. And plan B is, and I actually learned this from someone at Deloitte, because Deloitte has these things called, I think they call them moments that matter is what Deloitte calls it. Yeah. And, and I learned this from somebody. So what they, what they came up with was, I would say, so Matt, you've got this preferred provider. Let's pretend they get bought out or go bankrupt. And there's no way you could possibly do business with them. Describe to me the kind of vendor you would look for. Okay, scenario planning, I guess, yeah? Scenario. So now all of a sudden you're like, oh, I want someone who's responsive. I want someone who's reliable. I want someone who delivers results. I want someone who will make my life easy. All of this stuff. Now, generally often one of two things happens. Either all of a sudden the other person says, hang on a second, I'm not getting that today. And you have a conversation. Or you get to ask the question, those are all really good. I think you're describing exactly me, but here's my question. How much of this do you get from your current provider? Yeah. yeah. So you need to find a way to raise their expectations and create the dissatisfaction. Yeah. And yeah. this, this, I will tell you, since my first book came out, so I had plans for three books. First one is called Shift. How do you take advantage of the events when they naturally happen? Second book was going to become called Shove. How do you create the events and push aside your competition? And I'm very specific about competition versus competitors. The last book was going to be called Stay. How do you prevent the events and keep your customers? <laughs> so a couple of things have happened since then. First of all, people have come to me from a marketing perspective yeah. and said, how do, yeah. what do I do in a marketing world? So there's a book in my head that I've done a few times on a webinar called Shine, mm -hmm. how to stand out from the competition and get more customers. Um, but in this Next approach I was going to do around shove, I have spent almost six years doing research and talking to people about how do you actually create the events. And the two examples I just gave you is the only thing I've seen that actually works in six years of looking. Remember that the show is now on iTunes. So please head on over and either write us a review or subscribe for new episodes. And if you'd like to be an exclusive real-time participant on our next Digital Kung Fu live show, then visit our website at digitalkungfu.co.za forward slash live to get early bird VIP access.
Thanks for listening to the Digital Kung Fu Show. If you'd like to check out more episodes and get access to our growing community of entrepreneurs working together to succeed in business, then please visit our website at www.digitalkungfu.co.za. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients haiku went from a two percent share of voice globally to an 11 percent share of voice globally in only seven days if you'd like more information head on over to showworksmedia.com for more that is showworks with an x.com